0: So, as Mike said, today's reading is from Matthew chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 29, to chapter 21, verse 17, and I'm reading the New International Version. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, What do you want me to do for you? he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night.
1: Good morning. My name's Scott. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you over a coffee afterwards. Uh, if you've got, uh, it will be great to have that passage open, uh, either in your Bibles or On your phones, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. I think you can follow along and make sure I'm not making stuff up. Um, But uh, let's pray and ask God's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that in our hearts and our minds and even our bodies, in our spirit, that you would calm and quiet us now that you would enable us to focus all our attention on you, to hear your words. And we pray that you'd open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see wonderful things here, to see just how great a king Jesus is, that we would praise him and praise you, our Heavenly Father. Amen. Well, I wonder if... Um, has anyone come across those uh, that kind of new... Storybook, uh, write your own storybook kind of uh, thing that's going around a bit. Uh, you might have heard of them. You can uh, sign, you know, you can sign up a grandparent or a father or a, a spouse or a friend, and and each week they send you a, an email with a question, and then you just write a short story or a short kind of you know answer to the question. And each week you fill out a little bit more of your life story, and you kind of start at the beginning, you know, as you're with your parents and where they came from and where you came from and then your early years and then it's a little bit older and a little bit older and a little bit older right the way through and then you get to the end of the year and you've finished and you've kind of got your life story Uh, and they they print it and they send it to you and you've got a book you can show your kids and your grandkids Um, has anyone done one of those now Rex I know you've done one of yours I've seen yours and that's how I know about it. Has anyone else done one of these or maybe gifted one to someone? Fantastic. Well, uh, almost 10 years ago, this church, we started following a story of someone's life, of Jesus' life. Uh, But actually, it's quite different to those stories. And it's quite different because when those those write your own story you slowly work through and you you kind of give an equal amount of time to all the parts of your life but as we've worked through the book of Matthew it's actually really helpful to notice that Matthew is not like that when he records Jesus biography he doesn't sort of have an equal chapter on his his birth and an equal chapter on his childhood and then teenage Jesus and then adolescent Jesus and Jesus at work and then No, actually, the book of Matthew is kind of really (laughs) imbalanced like that. See, Matthew only spends the first two chapters, just two chapters, covering all of Jesus' family tree, the way he was born, which is pretty miraculous, and then his entire childhood in two chapters. Then he skips over 30 whole years where he doesn't even pick up the story again until Jesus, at the age of 30, begins his public ministry. So after two chapters on Jesus' family, his birth, his childhood, Matthew spends 18 chapters focusing on three years of Jesus' public ministry. And then, when we come to the very end of Matthew, the chapters that we're looking at from chapter 20 to 28... He spends these last seven and a half chapters focused just on one week. Two chapters for 30 years, 18 chapters for three years, but then seven and a half chapters, a quarter of his whole biography is all taken up with just one week. And this is really helpful and really significant for us because it shows that Matthew is slowing us down and focusing in on this one week as the most important part of Jesus' ministry. That's the climax, isn't it, of the story? From the very beginning, page one, Matthew has told us that Jesus is God's promised king. All the way along, he's used the Old Testament scriptures to show and prove that claim. And now, Jesus, the one who's done amazing miracles, who taught with authority, the one who fulfilled prophecies, is on his way to Jerusalem, the city of the king, the city of his forefather, David. He's on his way to claim his crown. And three times, as Mike has told us, he had warned what would happen when he got there. The religious leaders would arrest him, reject him, beat him, put him to death, and he would rise again. And so as we come to uh, this last week, this one week, the Easter week, there's tension in the air as Jesus and a crowd walk into Jerusalem where he will ascend to the throne. You've got a little uh, outline there you can follow along. Uh, This is our first point, Jesus, the merciful king. Have a look at verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, for a moment, I just want you to kind of park that scene and imagine a different scene. Imagine a few months ago, Charles, on his way to Westminster Abbey, on his way to his coronation service in his big fancy royal carriage, and uh, someone runs up, covered in grease, and they kind of wave him down, wave him down, and, and Charles tells the carriage to stop, and he winds down the window, and this guy says... Charles, Charles, can you help me? My car's broken down, I need you to help me fix it, get it back on the road. Now, I imagine that uh, his security detail would probably, you know, shoo this person away, you know, give him the number for the RAA and, uh, and Charles would continue on his way. And it would be fair enough, wouldn't it? I mean, fixing cars is not really uh, the king's job. Even if Charles knew how to fix a car, it's, he's got more important things to do. He was on his way to be crowned as the king. Switch back to Jesus. Jesus, with a crowd in tow, on his way to Jerusalem, to be crowned as king. And two blind guys start calling out to him. They want to slow down the procession. They ask him for mercy. And notice what they're asking for here, a little bit like, You know, someone asking King Charles to come and pretend to be a mechanic. They ask Jesus for something that you would not normally ask a king. They don't ask for a handout or a reform of the welfare system, but they ask for their sight back. That's pretty bizarre, isn't it, to ask a king to fix your eyes? I mean, what king can do that? Except these two blind men, they know what kind of king can do that they know who Jesus is the son of David the king that God had promised he's the one they've been hearing all these stories about how Jesus had healed how Jesus had walked on water how Jesus had fed thousands of people from one kid's lunchbox they knew that the kind of king that Jesus is is the kind of king not only with the power to heal but who is merciful enough to stop, to pause his progress towards Jerusalem and to show them kindness and compassion. See, Jesus didn't come to heal every Joseph, Nathanael and Eleazar that came his way, but he is the merciful king. Have a look at verse 34. He shows what kind of king he is. He had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. So even with his crystal clear focus on Jerusalem, Jesus had the compassion and mercy to stop and help these two blind men. Jesus is the merciful king. And, and second, as Jesus continues on his way, we see that Jesus is a gentle king. As they approach Jerusalem, they uh, getting a bit closer... Uh, and Jesus sends two of his disciples on ahead uh, to make some preparation. And the mission for them is to go and find a baby donkey. Not a big one, not a well-trained one, a little one that's never, never carried anyone before. Now, everyone knows if you're going to rock up into a city and sort of claim the city and come in and, and claim to be king, you ter- you're going to turn up kind of impressively, don't you? You know? If you're rocking up, you've got to flex some muscle and say, hey, I deserve to be king. Look at me. And so the US presidential candidates, you know, they come in on their private jets or their choppers. They've got all their security detail, you know, with the little earpieces and the black suits. And, you know, they're looking important and tough. And there's kind of a show of, of power and authority. You've got King Charles with his royal guard on their horses and their their red suits and their big funny hats and Caesar Augustus with his chariot and his centurions and Xi Jinping with all his rocket launchers and his tanks and his soldiers. You know, if you want to go and turn up and go, hey guys, I'm taking over this place, I'm king, that's how you do it. But Jesus doesn't go for power and force and show. Jesus is the gentle king. Now, who's been uh, following the story of the Danish royals of late? Uh, Prince Frederick, uh, well, now King Frederick and Queen Mary. Uh, Has anyone ever, does anyone know what they're called around town? A something monarchy? I'll give you a clue. The bicycle monarchy, have have you heard that phrase? They call them the bicycle monarchy and the reason why they do that is because They don't actually get around in big fancy cars with big fancy security details. The royal family actually rides bicycles like the rest of the Danes. They go down to the shops and they shop for groceries like the rest of the Danes. They call them the bicycle monarchy because riding a bike kind of symbolizes that they just act like normal people, humble. Well, Jesus, he's a bit like the bicycle king. He's he's the donkey king. He doesn't go around with his big flexing muscles, with a big entourage. He comes on a donkey. Humility and gentleness. This is really bizarre for a king of his day. But it was actually exactly what the prophets had said would happen. Right down to the detail of the age of the donkey he was riding. Not in days or months, but, you know. Have a look. The prophet Zechariah, verse 4. Matthew Matthew tells us, actually, this was written about. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus showed that he's not like any other king. He's not going to come in with power and might, with fear and intimidation. But he is the king who would claim his kingdom gently, just as God had promised. But then the gentle king does something that seems kind of at odds with being a gentle king. Notice the first place that the gentle king goes. It's not the palace, but it's the temple. And what he does there seems anything but gentle. Have a look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts... And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Actually, in John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus actually sort of disappeared for a while, got himself some leather and a pocket knife, sat there, took the time to make a stock whip before going in there, and, and literally drove them out as he flipped the tables. It doesn't seem like a particularly gentle thing to do, does it? But actually it is. See, as well as being the merciful and gentle king, Jesus is the zealous king. Now in history, there's, uh, there are plenty of erratic rulers, aren't there? Plenty of rulers who, are, you know, kind of jekyll one minute and hide the next. You know, whether they're paranoid or whether they're, you know, eccentric or they've got, you know, some, they're actually, you know, genuinely insane or whether they're just human. And, you know, one minute they're decent, and the next minute they're unreasonable. England's King George III, this is great, he was going through the great Windsor Park, and he ordered that his carriage stop so he could go and talk to an oak tree. It's kind of bizarre. Now, the Russian Tsar, Peter I, he lined up all of the Russian nobility on the street and came along with a pair of scissors and shaved all their beards off. And the Chinese emperor, this one's my favourite, Emperor Zengde, I don't know how to pronounce it, he was leading a group of soldiers on a mission to capture uh, an enemy and while he was with his soldiers, you know, on the hunt, he got a messenger come and tell him, actually, another group of soldiers has already found the guy. We've got him locked up. Well, what did Zengde do? He didn't want to spoil his fun. He said, release him, let him go, I want to catch him. And so they let the prisoner go just so he could go and capture him himself. See, there are lots of rulers aren't there who are inconsistent. Lots of rulers who can be hot one minute, cold the next. Rulers who are, aren't are completely sane or consistent. But actually, Jesus is not anything like those rulers, is he? Jesus is the most completely sane and consistent human that i've ever come across he is the most in control individual you'll ever find you look at him under pressure under threat jesus never flip-flops he never he doesn't have any split personalities he never contradicts himself he isn't inconsistent Unlike every one of us, Jesus is completely consistent. And here, actually, Jesus' mercy and gentleness go hand in hand with what we see here of his zeal in turning the tables and driving people out of the temple. Well, how? Jesus' words help us understand. You notice that he actually he quotes two Old Testament scriptures Uh, First, Isaiah 56, he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. And second, Jeremiah 7, he says, But you are making it a den of robbers. So he's not just driving anyone and everyone out of the temple. He's driving the people out of the temple who are desecrating the temple, the people who are defiling the temple, the people who are making it impossible for God's people to come into the temple and pray as it was supposed to be. See, in Isaiah 56, God said that the temple was a place for people from all nations who would be able to come and pray. But God had warned through Isaiah that Israel's watchmen, her rulers, would become greedy and blind, and they would block God's people from being able to come to him. Isaiah said that God would come himself, and he would drive these false shepherds, these greedy people out of his temple so that he could invite his people back in to receive mercy and compassion and gentleness in jeremiah 7 when god's people thought that because they had the temple it didn't matter what they did they could get away with doing whatever they wanted they could keep sinning because because of the temple it's okay we've got the temple god will have to accept us when Jeremiah 7, God warned his people he would destroy this temple just like he destroyed the first temple. Jesus quotes these passages. Jesus is the gentle and merciful king and how does he display that? By driving out these false leaders who are holding God's people back from coming to receive God's mercy, from coming to experience mercy. God's gentleness. See, they, these leaders were treating the temple as an opportunity to come and line their own pockets, an opportunity for them to gain power and flex muscle. But the number one way that God's gentle, merciful king shows his gentleness and mercy to his people is by making sure they can access God's house. By making sure they can come and receive mercy and forgiveness and grace. Well, just there, Mark uh, Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter nine, Verse four, "Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey." Well, actually, the verse just before that, God had said that guarding his temple is exactly what he'd do. Listen to this. Zechariah 9 verse 8, I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. See, while it would have been a shock to everyone at the time, Jesus is actually doing exactly what God said his king would do, gentle, merciful, and zealous, purifying God's place. But uh, it's not going to go down particularly well uh, with the religious leaders, is it? It'd be like if uh, Donald Trump uh, turned up at Texas, uh, the primaries are going, and and the, the National Rifle Association had a big convention and, you know, all the all the firearms manufacturers, they've all got their displays full of guns. And and if Donald Trump rocked up and jumped on a, roll, a steamroller and just sort of steamrolled through the convention and crushed all the guns and shouted, ban guns from America, you don't imagine it would go down too well in the biggest gun-toting state in the US, would it? Well, it's a little bit like that when Jesus rocks up into the temple and drives out, these leaders who are corrupt exposes their corruption they don't take too kindly have a look at verse 15 when they the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and they heard the children shouting in the temple courts hosanna to the son of david they were indignant jesus do you hear what these children are saying they asked him yes replied jesus have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city. See, point four, Jesus is the majestic king. Well, back in the day, uh, when I was growing up in Sydney, uh, you know, it's like in the, in the playground, there's always the kids that try and act tough. And, uh, you know, there were sort of, you know, kids that would go around acting all that and... Uh, Rumours would fly about, you know, so and so's in this gang and so and so's in that gang and, you know, watch out for them, they're in the Yakuza and all this kind of stuff. And uh, you knew that most of the time it was just people talking rubbish, talking hot air. Uh, but, but when a real tough kid came along, you know, one of these kids that really was in one of these gangs and, you know, mucked about with some pretty dangerous people, you'd soon find out who the fakers were and who the real deal were. Because the fakers are chicken out when faced with the real deal. The real deal would hold the ground. And that's when you knew you were going to have a fight. See, the religious leaders here, they come to Jesus and they throw down the gauntlet. They say, hey, Jesus, you're not the real deal. We hear what these guys are saying. They're saying you're the king we've been waiting for, but we know you aren't you better get these guys to keep quiet or you're going to be in for a world of pain. We see Jesus, who is the real deal. He doesn't back down. Jesus tells them, actually, this is a fulfilment of Psalm 8. Jesus, in quoting here Psalm 8, and we see just this this whole passage is just full of Old Testament scripture. Here Jesus quotes from the 8th Psalm. And when he does, not only is Jesus not backing down, he's actually doubling down. He raises the stakes. Because Psalm 8 isn't just about children praising God's king. It's actually about children praising God himself, the Lord of all heaven and earth. Have a listen. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory in the heavens and through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. See, so when the teachers or the chief priests come to Jesus and say, hey, can't you hear? These guys are calling you the king. Jesus goes, well, can't you hear? They're not just calling me the king. They're praising me because I am God the Lord of heaven and earth, the one whose name is majestic in all the earth. Jesus raises the stakes and he drops the mic and he turns and walks away. So we see here that Jesus is the merciful king who takes time to care for the weak and lowly, the gentle king who comes in humility and not in force or showiness, He's the zealous king who protects and purifies God's house. He's also the majestic king whose, whose glory comes from who he is, God the creator of heaven and earth. Well, if this is the king who we follow and serve, what does it mean for us as a people to follow and serve this king? Point five. Well, firstly, because we have a merciful king, we must be people who show mercy. There's something so wrong, isn't there, when when people who claim to follow Jesus don't have any compassion or time or mercy for people in need? There's loads of practical ways we can show this mercy and compassion. We can deliberately seek out opportunities. We can we can find Christian organizations where we can we can help resource and provide care we can find ministries to be involved in where we care for people and help people but it's also in the everyday it's in the people just in our lives around us and it's not just physical need is it in this place you know there's there is physical need around us but actually most people are pretty materially wealthy most people don't struggle to eat there's a whole lot of other needs, aren't there? Emotional, spiritual, relational needs. And in some ways, these are needs that are harder to deal with because we can't just throw a bit of money at them. Food, oh, you're hungry? Great, here, let me write your cheque. Oh, you've got depression and anxiety. Schizophrenia, you've struggled for 10 years. That's going to take a lot of time. Jesus, on a far more important path than you and I stopped to show mercy and compassion to those two blind men, just like he had for countless other people before them. We, as servants of this merciful king, need to be people who stop, who take the time to show mercy and compassion to those around us so I want to ask you a question is is there someone in your life who you know needs some mercy and compassion maybe you've been reluctant to care from them or you've sort of been holding them at arm's length worried about the amount of time of yours that you think that they will take let us be servants of our merciful king have mercy stop and show compassion I just want to point you, just have a look there at verse 34 uh, of chapter 20. See what happened when Jesus showed compassion. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. How many people have you come across who their story is that a believer of Jesus has taken the time to stop and show them mercy and compassion to invest in them for the long haul and in time, they've come to find Jesus for themselves and follow him. We must be people who show mercy because Jesus, our king, is merciful. Second, as Jesus is our gentle king, we must be people who are gentle. See, so Jesus didn't seek worldly power or glory. He wasn't driving a Maserati while everyone else was in a Toyota. He wasn't flying first class in a private jet, you know. He wasn't big naming himself. He didn't scare people into submission or bully. That was what the chief priests were doing. How wrong is it when Christ's servants are are claiming to be his servants and are not gentle? How wrong is it when the gospel is used like a stick to beat people with? How wrong is it when leadership in the church is used as an excuse to belittle or bully people? How wrong is it when Christians take up arms or become aggressive or walk around waving banners that are designed to hurt and condemn rather than inviting people to come to the gentle king who wants to forgive and save? (coughs) We must be people who are gentle because Jesus is our gentle king. And because Jesus is our zealous king, we must be zealous too. Now, I'm not going to say much about this because uh, last week we spent a, big, um, a lot of time looking at this in Jude. And so if you, if you weren't with us last week, I'd encourage you to jump on the website and have a little listen uh, there. But we must not confuse gentleness with cowardice or with complacency and apathy. We must be zealous in guarding the faith that God has entrusted us to guard so that people can come to the grace and mercy of God unhindered. We must be zealous because our king is zealous. And finally, because he is our majestic king, because he is the king who is Lord of all the earth, we must join those little children in praising him. His praise must be on our lips. Like those children, we must be people where Jesus' name and the proclamation of who he is and what he's done comes out of our mouths. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our sports groups, at the gym, when we're with old friends. We must be people who praise God, who praise the King, who is the majestic king of all the earth.